Du, du liegst mir im Herzen, du, du liegst mir im Sinn. Du, du machst mir viel Schmerzen, weiß nicht, wie gut ich dir bin. Okay, I'm Kristen Gillett and I am a German teacher at Westford Academy in Westford, Massachusetts. Fernando, do you remember Kristen? Of course. We interviewed her at ACTFL, the American Language Teachers Conference, this fall in Nashville. What a sweet person, and she sounds like such a great teacher. Yeah, I agree with you, and we'll hear a bit more from Kristen later in the show. But what seems remarkable about Kristen to me now, since we've been researching this episode, is that we have any teachers of German at all left in America. Yes, a hundred years ago, the teaching of German was blasted away to almost nothing. And hence the title of this show, When America Went to War Against the German Language, which tells the story of a dark and mostly forgotten chapter in American history, yet one whose impact is still very much with us today. But first, let's welcome everyone to the show. Welcome to America the Bilingual, a podcast that reports on and encourages the bilingual movement in America. I'm Steve Levine. And I'm Fernando Hernandez. Fernando, this episode started about two years ago when my wife, Lori, showed me a New York Times op-ed titled, Whatever Happened to German America? I was amazed to read that America's largest ethnic group today is... Latino. Yeah, that's what I assumed too, (laughs) right? But it's not Latino. It's German American. The thing is, hardly any of us identify as German American. Wait, You have a German background? (laughs) Yeah, on my mother's side. My grandmother was Emma Relke, and my grandfather was George Nock. I never thought anything of it, which is the point. Now I realize, after reading that piece and the book behind it, that the reason I and millions of other Americans no longer identify as German Americans can be traced back to the years when America was fighting in World War I. And you were able to interview the author of that piece. Yes, his name is Eric Kirschbaum, and he wrote a book about what happened to German-Americans during World War I. I caught up with Eric on the phone. He begins his story with an American immigrant who worked in a mine. One night, a bunch of co-workers from the mine had maybe had a drink or two too many at the local pub, And they decided that he must be a German spy just because he spoke English with a German accent and had a glass eye and was agitating for a strike and whatever. So they decided to show their patriotism and they went to the boarding house he was staying and and they dragged him out of his out of his room and they made him drape a flag, a U.S. flag around his shoulders and they made him march up and down Wall Street, pledging allegiance to the United States. Main Street, sorry, just parading up and down Main Street. in the small town, um, showing showing that he was a patriotic American, and he did all that. He did everything they told him to do. He didn't want to get in deeper trouble. That wasn't enough for him. I'm Eric Kirschbaum, and I'm a journalist and author who lives in Berlin, Germany, and I've written a book called Burning Beethoven, 
the eradication of German culture in the United States during World War I. And the immigrant he's talking about? His name was Robert Paul Prager. Prager was a German immigrant to the United States from Dresden. Um, he'd lived in the United States for over a decade and bounced from job to job. He ended up working in a mine in near St. Louis, and he was a bit of an agitator, agitating for the union and not always getting along with his co-workers, and he wasn't really liked by his co-workers. And when, World War, when the United States entered World War I in 1917, he tried to get U.S. citizenship. He kind of sensed trouble was brewing, so he applied for U.S. citizenship and didn't get it right away and was turned down. He had one glass eye, which I'm not sure that helped his case or not, but for whatever reason, he was a German citizen and he was working in a mine in near St. Louis in southern Illinois. So what happened that night? The mob was getting bigger and bigger and word was spreading around town that they caught a German spy, even though it was a ridiculous claim. He had he had nothing to do with any espionage, he just had a German accent. And the police at first tried to protect him. They locked him up in the jail for his own protection. But the mob got bigger and they were determined to do vigilante justice against this spy. And somehow they were able to get him out of the jail and they paraded him to the edge of town. But the police let him go then. The police said, we don't have any jurisdiction here. So the mob paraded him to a tree near the Mississippi River somewhere. And they tried to hang him, but they were amateurs and they forgot to tie his hands. And so he was able to pull on the rope and avoid being hanged to death at first. And then they lowered him down and they tied his hands up again and they, they strapped him up against the tree and they hanged him. He died. He was hanged as a spy without a trial, without anything, just in the middle of the night by this mob of people in this southern Illinois town. Isn't that called a lynching? Exactly. They, they lynched him for no reason at all, except their suspicion that he was a spy. And the real travesty was a few weeks later, there was a trial and the jury acquitted all the people accused of hanging him. And um, afterwards, one of the jury members was quoted in the local press as saying, uh, that shows that we're patriotic and nobody can call us, accuse us of being slackers. What a nightmare. And the lynching of Robert Paul Prager at 12.30 a.m. on Friday, April 5th, 1918, wasn't an isolated incident. About 30 people were hanged by these sort of vigilante, or, or lynched by these vigilante groups that just trying to show their patriotism. Lynchings weren't the only thing going on. There were internment camps for German-Americans. I've heard of the American-Japanese internment camps. A lot of people know about the internment camps of World War II when Japanese-Americans or Japanese citizens were rounded up and put into internment camps. But in World War I, there was also internment camps set up for Germans. And some German-Americans were considered enemy aliens, and they were put up into two or three camps in the South, ostensibly for their own protection, but totally innocent people, including music conductors or whatever, ended up in these internment camps for a year or two just because the United States was worried that these were all German spies and they would trying, be trying to sabotage the U.S. war efforts. The lynchings and the internment camps were part of a bigger pattern of attacking all things German in America once the U.S. declared war on Germany, and there were lots of German things to attack. 
It's hard to imagine, but there was 500 German-language newspapers in the United States. There were German-American clubs in every city. There was singing societies. There was German was taught in, in elementary schools in 35 states. It was the language. In some ways, German was, in 1917, what, what Spanish is today. Eric points out that English is replete with German words that are so common today, we may not even know that they came from German. Words like noodle, standpoint, cookbook, iceberg, shoe, and zigzag. And famous German-Americans. Like Chrysler, Boeing, and Steinway. During the war, most German newspapers and schools were shut down. Some states made teaching German outright illegal. And there was more. literally um, paint hot tar on somebody's back and then put feathers on them and make them walk around on the street um, tarred and feathered. So yeah, there was a lot of cruel things that happened. Sometimes in some states, in Montana, for example, about 80 Germans had their children taken away from them for violating the Alien and Sedition Law. The Alien and Sedition Law of 1917 and 1918 is incredibly similar to the Patriot Act of 2002. And it made it basically a crime to speak out um, against the United States government or criticize the war. And so some German-Americans in some states like Montana had their children taken away and given up to adoption just because they spoke out critically about the war. Or they, in some places, if they didn't contribute to war bonds, didn't buy enough war bonds. No one alive today is old enough to remember just how big the German-American community was in America 100 years ago and how proud German-Americans were of their heritage. Yeah, um, there was a lot of pride in the German-American community um, after about 1870 when Germany united in, in Europe. It was a heyday for Germany. Um, it was a leader in technology, it was a leader in science and many things. German, United States universities across the country are often based on this German model with a chancellor as the head of the university. The German universities were, were really world class in that era after 1870. So there was a lot of pride, a lot of pride about Germany, not just in the United States, but around the world. And it was really growing quickly as a huge industrial power. Well, it's customary to be proud of where you're from. And German-Americans felt that their love of the old country didn't prevent them from also being proud Americans. After all, they or their relatives came to America for a better life and felt that their German know-how and culture could help elevate themselves and their new country. Here's Eric. And they had this notion they could be loyal to the motherland, Germany, and still be good Americans. They thought they could have this dual loyalty, this hyphenated German-American. They thought there was nothing wrong with that. And that rubbed some of the nativists in the United States the wrong way. So nativism isn't a new thing in America. The idea that today's immigrants are never as good as yesterday's 
has probably been with us from the beginning, and the American dream is that we could create a new country free of the old world problems so long as immigrants would just leave their old loyalties behind and become 100% American. And being 100% American meant speaking English and only English? Well, that was argued about. And one of the most influential voices arguing in America at that time was Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, the president behind teddy bears and America's national parks. Yes, a beloved national figure, but also a complex one. People like Teddy Roosevelt was that you can be German or American, but you can't be both. And so this dual nationality idea is something that was really challenged by World War I and really tested. I asked Eric if Roosevelt was on the right side or the wrong side of history. I guess it depends on your standpoint. If you think it's a shame that the German-American culture was wiped out as, as massively it was, no, he was on the wrong side. But if you look at Teddy Roosevelt as somebody who wanted to make sure the United States, the Americans were faithful and, and loyal to the American flag only, uh, then he was on the right side of history. So. He was very effective as, as a cheerleader for ending hyphenism. He was really influential in his day. He almost almost won another term as president as an independent candidate and um, helping Wilson get reelected in the process. So now he was a very, very powerful and influential figure. The irony of Roosevelt's stand against even the teaching of German is that he himself spoke German. Roosevelt spoke German? Yes, and French too. When he was president, he used his German to address a group of German trade representatives. I'm quoting from a book titled Theodore Rex by Edmund Morris. For 20 minutes he spoke, in vigorous if ungrammatical German, of Goethe, Schiller, Lessing, and Theodore Kerner. One of the German representatives said afterwards, he astounded us. Here's Eric. It is discouraging because you would think that he would understand the value of speaking the language and knowing these languages. That's one of the bizarre things that during World War I, uh, the United States had this campaign against teaching German as if that was an important part of the war. Whereas in Britain, which was also a war against Germany, they thought it was important to keep teaching German, to understand the language of the enemy. Why would you want to stop learning the language of the country you're fighting against? It's, it seems a bit strange, but it's something distinctly American. Eric discovered that the anti-German language campaign spilled over into other languages as well. While researching this book, I kept coming across little anecdotes from newspapers in the Midwest where two elderly women who spoke only Norwegian in Minnesota somewhere were on a train and they were hauled off the train and thrown into jail for a few hours because they were speaking Norwegian to each other and somebody thought they were speaking German. So not only was German language, the German language instruction and any appreciation of German sort of thrown out the window during World War I, other foreign languages that sounded German suddenly were viewed suspiciously. I asked Eric if there was anyone arguing in defense of still teaching German someone who would sound like the voice of reason today. There were. There were some school districts, like the New York City School District, which tried to resist this for the longest time. They were saying exactly that. No, teaching German is important. It's important, if nothing else, to understand the language of the enemy. But the pressure just grew and grew, and there was very powerful lobby groups. The American Defense League, I think it was called, 
and their job was to pressure school boards to dump German. And by 1918, by the spring of 1918, they had given up, and they were taking German out of all the schools in New York City. So there were attempts, but anybody who tried to stand up to this powerful wave was, was, was slapped back down. Okay, but to be fair, weren't there actual German spies in America during those years? In fact, the ambassador, the German ambassador to the United States, Bernstorff, was coordinating some espionage activities. They had plans to uh, sabotage some locks in upstate New York. Sort of ridiculous things, but there were, there were definitely some efforts. There were also efforts to recruit sailors in New York <clears throat> Harbor to set little small bombs off on ships that were sailing across the Atlantic. And a lot of supply ships were sunk by these German spies. So it, it wasn't picked up out of the blue. There were definitely people who were working as German spies in the United States. But it was nowhere as near this big, massive movement. And of the 7 million German-Americans, very, very few of them were minuscule numbers were involved in that. And then there was the famous Zimmermann telegram, which is where my country gets into this story. The Zimmermann telegram is essentially what got the United States into World War I. A lot of people thought it was the sinking of the Lusitania, but that was in 1915. Wilson won re-election in 1916 by promising to keep the United States out of the war, which he had done until that point. But in early 1917, a German deputy foreign minister named Arthur Zimmermann sent a telegram, a coded telegram, to Mexico. And he sent it through the only cable going across the, net, across the Atlantic, which went through Britain, um, to Mexico. And it was intercepted by British intelligence. And the British intelligence deciphered the cable. And the cable was pretty much a offer from Germany to Mexico to invade the United States. Germany was about to up its submarine warfare against all ships crossing the Atlantic, and they anticipated the United States would enter World War I because of this, and they were hoping that Mexico could invade or attack the U.S. on the southern border and distract the United States and keep the United States from having an impact on the war in Europe. I had this vague recollection of the Zimmerman telegram in my head, but forgot what it was about until I read Eric's book. Do Mexican school children learn about the Zimmerman telegram in their history classes? Yes, but almost as a footnote of the Mexican Revolution chapter, we were in full chaos in those years. In this telegram, the Zimmerman telegram, they offered, they promised to help Mexico uh, recover the lost territories of Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. And it was a pretty ill-advised telegram to send on a cable um, and... Mexico didn't really have much interest in this anyway, but the cable was an extremely explosive development, and the British agents gave it to President Wilson, and that was the reason the United States declared war on Germany in April 1917. And in the beginning, there was disbelief that the telegram was even real. Yeah, a lot of German-Americans were shocked. Um, at first, they thought it was fake news. They couldn't believe it, but Zimmerman pretty quickly acknowledged, yes, it was true. And the German-American newspaper editors and columnists and editorial writers were just shocked. And they, they knew right away the gig was up, and they knew that their defense of Germany until that point was making them quite vulnerable <laughs> for what happened. So in some ways, this wave of hysteria against the German-Americans, um, there was it was certainly the Germans were a big, fat target there because they had been so 
pronounced in defending Germany during the first few years of World War I. And when the Zimmermann telegram turned out to be true, it's what really prompted the, the big waves of hysteria against German-Americans. Our author, Eric Kirschbaum... Steve, that seems like a German name, but he sure sounds American. Was there a personal connection that got him to write his book? Yes. Here's how Eric answered that question. I was born in New York in 1960 and grew up in New York and Connecticut. My grandfather um, spoke German, but when I was in high school trying to learn German, I asked him for some help, and he claimed he didn't know it anymore. And that surprised me because I, I thought he could speak German, and my mother said it's not true, he speaks German really well. But he just refused to speak German anymore, and really adamantly just didn't want to speak it. He said he didn't know it anymore. His grandfather was Joseph Kirschbaum. He was born in, in New York in, 19, in 1891, and he only spoke German until uh, when he started kindergarten and school. And German was his first language, even though he had never been to the United, uh, never been to Germany. Um, there was about a million people in New York City who spoke German at the turn of the century. And it was a really powerful, uh, dominant language. A quarter of the people in New York City spoke German. It was the world's third biggest German-speaking city after Berlin and Vienna. That sounds like the Spanish spoken in Los Angeles today. Did Eric ever get his grandfather to speak German with him? No, he, he died before I got to college. He died right around the time I graduated from high school. But Eric continued taking German when he got to college at the University of Wisconsin. So then when I got to college in Wisconsin, I was majoring in history and thrashing around for a senior honor thesis idea. And um, I pitched this idea of, you know, what happened to the German culture in the United States. And my professor said, fine, go for it. And I um, dove into the libraries there in Madison, Wisconsin, and found out all kinds of fascinating and gory stories about what happened to the Germans in the United States during World War I. So he began to understand his grandfather. World War I happened, and he got swept up in it. He was a young man at that age. They were taught to be Americans and no longer German-Americans, no more hyphenism. And it was a traumatic, tragic period for German-Americans during World War I. I suddenly understood why he didn't want to speak German anymore. I understood the pain of people like him and, and millions more of the German-Americans. Eric went to Germany on a junior year study abroad trip and fell in love with the country. When I first came here as a student in 1982, I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have any health insurance in the United States. I came to West Germany and didn't really know that much about it. Knew all about the Nazi era and the Holocaust. And then I discovered West Germany was really a, um, a place where you didn't need a lot of money to, do, to get by in. I suddenly had health insurance for just a few dollars a month. Um, the quality of life was really good here. There were no guns. Uh, people were safe. You could see men and women walking alone on a, late on an evening, on a Saturday evening, not worrying about being mugged or shot. And I thought, wow, that says a lot about the quality of life. And I just saw Germany as a country that had, the world had, had the wrong impression about Germany. I thought um, West Germany was a lot of good things going for it. And before that, I wanted to be a sports writer. But after living in Germany as a student, West Germany as a student, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent to write about this country and what's going on in this country. After graduating, Eric went back to Germany. I've lived in Germany pretty much straight on since the late 80s and over 30 years now and just enjoy living here. And, enjoy speaking German, even though I do have a bit of an American accent even today. So when did he decide to go back to his thesis and make it a book? It was after 9-11, when 
When he started hearing reports about maltreatment of Arabic speakers in the U.S., it seemed eerily familiar. He told me he wanted to remind his fellow Americans about what happened during World War I, so that maybe we wouldn't repeat the same behavior. Well, it's a pretty dark chapter of U.S. history, and it's something I don't think anybody was proud about. And I think it was something that as soon as possible after the war, people wanted to forget about, and they just swept it under the carpet. This happens in the U.S. history when there's these periods of ultra-patriotism, when people, when things get over the top, when things get hysteric. I think the period right after 9-11, some of the things that happened in the United States to to Muslims in the United States being pulled off of airplanes just because they looked they looked like foreigners, they looked dangerous. It's a travesty, and I think it's something a lot of Americans today don't even really want to remember, even though it was only 15 years ago. They don't really fit into the tradition that the U.S., a lot of Americans like to see for themselves. It's a shame that people forget about something like this because you could learn a lot from it. And I think if more people understood what happened to the German-Americans during World War I, something like what happened after 9-11 might not have happened. German wasn't completely destroyed. I reached out to Stanford professor Russell Berman, who is a professor of German and past president of the MLA, the Modern Language Association. German was widely taught, especially in the German-American community, of course, which was large. And uh, this uh, wave of anti-Germanism beginning in 1914 and it broke that. Um, the amount of German language instruction in the schools after 1917 or 1918 was almost nil. It had been really expunged. But it gradually started coming back. Despite that nadir, German came back to some degree in the 20s and the 30s. The real break, I believe, in language learning came with the break in the humanities in general around 1970. That's in the context of the, uh, the unrest on campus and everything else that was going on. There was a lot of pressure put on faculty to ratchet back on requirements. It was not just student unrest or it's just not, not just the politics of the Vietnam War that led to this uh, situation. Uh, I think in addition, there was a growing pressure on students to enroll in classes and head toward degrees that would uh, quite clearly promise access to careers. And language and the arts and humanities were largely, often incorrectly, seen as outside of that resume-building world. The MLA has been tracking college language enrollment since 1950, and after peaking in the 1970s, the percentage of college students taking language classes has declined. German has remained the third most taught language, fourth if you count ASL. It's not growing in any significant way, but it's maintaining that position. I think a rule of thumb, French is about half of Spanish and German is about half of French. How this is going to go into the future, I, I can't tell. But the most recent college enrollment data we have from the MLA are not promising. In the period from 2009 to 2013, overall language enrollments were down 6.7% across the board. What about German? Down 9.3%. 
Getting back to what it means to be an American, can you be a patriotic American and still speak a language in addition to English? I asked Eric Kirschbaum that question. It's so strange, but such an American idea that by speaking a foreign language, you are not a patriotic American. It, it seems ridiculous. I mean, reading about book burnings, teachers and mayors and Boy Scouts took German language books out of schools in Ohio, in Wisconsin, in Illinois, and they piled them on the streets and set them on fire. Burning books, burning German textbooks, was a way to show you were patriotic during World War One. It's ridiculous to was burn a textbook. Was so Eric certainly believes you can be a patriotic bilingual. Oh, definitely. Why not? I mean, uh, it enriches the country to have so many other foreign languages spoken. And when I was a young boy growing up in New York, in the Lower East Side of New York, I remember hearing Italian, Polish, Chinese, and just being fascinated by people talking to you in English in one moment and then suddenly speaking a foreign language. It's important to know about what's going on outside the U.S. It's something that would, would help the United States probably avoid some mistakes and, and have better policies if more people understood foreign languages and knew more about the world. I mean, because I speak German doesn't make, make me any less pro-American or less patriotic. It's a bit absurd, really. And I don't think any German who speaks English would be any less patriotic towards Germany. Yet even at Stanford, Professor Russell Berman says the university leadership seems little concerned that students gain competence in languages. Yeah, we have a de facto one-year language requirement, but students can place out of it with, uh, by, through an examination. University leadership in recent years has emphasized um, global citizenship and international awareness. I think there's a perspective that suggests that we could promote the international profile of our undergraduates, their international horizons, without their learning other languages. I think that's a mistake. I just think that learning other languages is a crucial part of education, both for their specific international payoff, whether that's in the business side or on the culture side, but also because of the, um, the intellectual dimension associated with language learning. And it's a shame that it's becoming so rare in the U.S. What does Eric think about the continued declines in German study in America, even during his lifetime? It's discouraging me, to me as well to see the high school where I went to in Connecticut no longer offers German, to see the university I went to in Wisconsin where the German program is shrinking all the time, that German is not really offered in, in schools anymore. And it, it's, it's surprising and disappointing to me because learning a foreign language is really important. And to see the United States turning away from foreign languages is, to, in my eyes, an ominous, ominous way to go. While Eric was never able to speak German with his grandfather, he is able to speak German, as well as English, with his daughter. And my daughter who grew up, she's actually Austrian and grew up in Berlin, but lives in California now. And when people ask where she's from, she says Germany. And she's 30 and I'm like, wow, she's not even German, but she says she's from Germany. And I think that shows that German and Germany has become a positive thing. I think it's an encouraging thing. I'm really encouraged by that. I'll bet Eric would be encouraged by our German teacher, Kristen, too. 
Yes, let's get back to Kristen. We asked her how she learned German. I started taking German in seventh grade because Frau Berger was awesome. Mm-hmm. Yep, she was my seventh and eighth grade German teacher in Groveland, Massachusetts in the Pentucket School District. And she was wonderful, warm and intelligent and engaging. And, you know, my older brother was taking German too. And I thought we could have secret conversations and my parents would never know what we were saying. Um, it worked out pretty well, actually. When we asked her why she became a German teacher, she also talked about her study abroad and, surprisingly, the smell of the country. I always connect memory with smell. For some reason, it's really, really tightly. Yeah, and, and, and now, even now, like I will land and I will step off the airplane and I'll go, smells like Germany. Boston to me smells gray, if that makes any sense. It's a flat, more of a flat smell. Where you, then you get off in Germany, if I had to describe Germany as a color, it would be more like the smell of Germany is more of an orange-yellow smell, much warmer. Kristen clearly fell in love with Germany. And when we share the statistics with her of German enrollment figures continuing to decline in America, she argued with us. I'm not finding that to be the case uh, in our area. I think it's actually growing. Businesses, um, international, you know, global communities are really looking... You know, German is such a strong economic market in Europe, uh, and the you know German language skills are actually very valued. Well, Spanish is naturally the largest language at our school, but the students who take German are really motivated to learn the language. Why is that? I asked. I feel like there's a resurgence of German, learning German since you know the end of the Cold War, with the boom in technology and science. I feel like people while not forgetting the past, because this is something I have to deal with a lot with my students too. And you know, I've, I used to have students that would ask, you know, are you a Nazi? Well, no. And this is something that's still kind of there and, and part of the, the German mentality or, or something that they're very, very aware of. But I think that there's an understanding that your history does not define who you are now. While you should not forget the past, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's who you are now. Du, du liegst mir im Herzen, du, du liegst mir im Sinn. Du, du machst mir viel Schmerzen, weiß nicht wie gut ich dir bin. And that I'll translate it for you if you'd like. Yes, um, you are in my heart, you're in, on my mind, you're causing me sorrow, you don't know how good I am for you. America the Bilingual is part of the Lead with Languages campaign of ACTFL, the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages. This episode was written by me, Steve Levine, and our producer, Fernando Hernandez, who also does our cool sound design and mixing. Our associate producer is Becky Rankin. Check out the rest of the cast at americathebilingual.com, including Mim Harrison, Maya Thomas, Carlos Plaza, and especially our barklingual mutt, Chet. Special thanks to Michelle Van Gilder of the Lead with Languages campaign and Kristen Gillett who sang us into this episode. That sweet melody has been in my head ever since. 
Fernando, we've got some extra music credits for this episode. Music in this episode with a Creative Commons attribution share alike licensed by Kevin MacLeod, Jorge Mario Zuleta, Rafael Arcangel, Francisco Penilla, and Lee Rose Veer. As always, visit americathebilingual.com for photos and background material relating to this episode when America went to war against the German language. If you like what you hear, please share with your friends and help us spread bilingualism across America. Thanks for listening for America the Bilingual. This is Steve Levine. <laughs>